If you'll turn uh, in your copy of God's Word, or if you don't have a copy, um, let me know. I'm happy to get you one uh, in the future, but also uh, to Psalm 8. Turn to Psalm 8. We're in our summer series in the Psalms, uh, and this is the one we find ourselves at this morning. So turn your attention to the reading of God's holy, uh, inerrant Word. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Grass withers, flower fades. The word of our God abides forever, and we need him to work in our hearts and our lives to hear His Word rightly. Let's pray. Father, do send Your Spirit to fill me, to strengthen me, to empower me, to proclaim Your Word with truth and with grace, to make it clear. And Lord, I pray that You would open our eyes to see Your beauty and Your wonder and Your glory and Your majesty. And Lord, that we would see the beauty of our Savior as well, and how our hope is found in Him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I can't remember the exact year, but I, I do vividly remember the moment, actually moments, the, the experiences. I don't have any photos or, or video uh, from my phone because there weren't any phones that took pictures like that back then. Only the indelible imprint of the glory of God in that moment on my life as a teenager. Actually, it was two times, but very similar experiences for me. Both of them were when I was at Philmont Scout Ranch in New Mexico. One year was sleeping under the stars at about 11,000 feet, and the other involved waking up ridiculously early to catch the sunrise over a rock outcropping called the Tooth of Time. In the first, I, I truly cannot ever recall seeing more stars in the sky than I did that night. No light pollution whatsoever, and just the raw beauty of the visible universe. It was actually a, a bit overwhelming to see it. I'd, I'd never seen that many stars and the second, the sunrise, actually getting up before that and, and really the, the, the minutes before the sunrise is this uh, just wide spectrum of colors just filled the sky. It was, it was the whole spectrum. It was absolutely stunning. It was glorious. And I remember at those times being just in sheer wonder. And even thinking, maybe not in these exact words, but I, but I know I thought something along these lines. Man, how, why do I matter? Who am I? 
How, how do I fit into this vast universe? Who really cares? I feel so small and insignificant. And I wonder if there was a similar experience, perhaps late at night or early in the morning while David was tending sheep, where he was overwhelmed by the grandeur of God's beauty. The night sky, that morning sky, and David began to muse about the same idea. Psalm 8 is a wonder at God's creation. And it, in many ways, it, it seeks to ask that question about the role of humanity. It's actually the first psalm in the Psalter that is a hymn. Psalms 1 and 2 are the intro, and Psalms 3 through 7 are laments. So this is the first time that you have this, this hymn and, and, and we have this explosion of praise and wonder, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, the psalm itself, it doesn't follow any common structure um, of, a, of a hymn, of one of those songs of orientation, but it does have a common theme that we see that, that, that goes in lines with psalms like Psalm 19, that I read a portion of it for the pastoral prayer, or Psalm 29, or 65, or 104. But in its structure, though, there is, I, 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 you can see it very quickly, the, 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 the refrain, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, in both verses 1 and 9, and they serve as, as bookends. But compositionally and, and really theologically, verse 4 is the center of the psalm. My old professor saw this chiastic structure that's kind of this, you know, a chi in, in Greek is the Hebrew, it looks like an X, so you just take half of it, and it's this movement like an arrow. And so he saw verses 1a and 9 as this outer frame, or those upper and lower parts, and then verses 1b through 3 and 5 through 8 is kind of the inner frame, and then it all points to verse 4. Now, um, whether it is a chiasm or not, the, the centrality of verse 4 is, is true. Uh, and so we're just going to look at it that way. And one way that we also see that it's true is grammatically. The word that's for how in verses 1 and 9, how majestic is your name in all the earth, is the same word in Hebrew for what. What is man that you are mindful of him? You could almost say, oh Lord, our oh Lord, what majesty in all the earth. In this, this just exclamation of praise. And so, for any Hebrew reader's eyes, they would, be, they would see that outside and they'd be drawn right to the middle of the psalm to that question, what is man that you are mindful of him? So, that's verse 4. That's the key question. And this, this question addresses both the nature of man and the nature of God. John Calvin addressed this just wonderfully in his institutes, his, his great work, and he said, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us. Unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity, Moreover, we are not thus convinced if we look merely to ourselves and not also to the Lord, 
who is the sole standard by which this judgment must be measured. So, in many ways, what Calvin is saying, and he says it further on, he says, true and sound wisdom consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. He's saying you cannot separate those things. We cannot separate knowing ourselves from knowing God. We'll, we'll have a false view of ourselves if we don't actually know God. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. We'll explore it in three points, divine, human, and then the divine human. Okay, so three sections. And in doing so, I hope that we see the majesty of God. I hope that we, we begin to see some of our role and I hope we see our Savior more clearly in this. So let's, let's begin where the psalm begins. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Now, in English, this verse looks and sounds a little bit repetitive. O Lord, our Lord. Um, he's not stuttering here or anything like that. But actually, if you look at your Bible or even on the, the screen, you see the typeset for the two lords are, are different. That's because they represent different Hebrew words. Uh, when you see all caps, and it's in pretty much all Bibles, I believe, when you see all caps, it, it represents the name Yahweh or the covenant God, the covenant-keeping God. It emphasizes that, and, and, and um, there's a reminder of God's gracious dealings with His people, of deliverance from Egypt, of His… Uh, David would certainly be reminded of the covenant that God made with him personally and for his seed to forever. Now, the second is the use, is the word Adonai. Uh, some of you have heard that. If you've heard some old, like, contemporary Christian music, which isn't very contemporary anymore, but old Christian music that they sang Adonai, Adonai, um, things like that. And so, that means sovereign or God, master. That's just your typical idea of Lord. You're my Lord. You're my master. You're my sovereign. So, that, I think, helps us understand that he's saying, oh, oh, Yahweh, our master, our sovereign. Now, what follows in the psalm is wonder. How majestic is your name in all the earth? Now, when we speak of God's name, what we mean here is not just, just the name, but it points to the, the knowledge of the perfections of the character of God, uh, how He has revealed Himself to us. God's name refers to who He is. It, it's His reputation, His character, and it's on display in all the earth. All can see this. And, and there is one simple point here. When it says, how majestic is your name in all the earth, this is saying from this point even, as, as God is the God of the Hebrews, though, He's not merely a tribal deity. He is the universal God. He is the one true and living God. And then it says, you have set your glory above the heavens. Here's the realm of the majesty that David has seen. He's awed by the, the transcendence of God as he gazes at the heavens, the, the, uh, God's surpassing nature and greatness. Psalm 57, 5, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Psalm 113, 4, the Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. And in some ways, there's there's uh, a picture of God's holiness, too, in all of this, and, and it reflects Isaiah 6.3. Remember what the seraphim say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. 
We can see His glory. We can see His majesty. All that reflects the the Lord's glory, He set there. He spoke it into existence. He maintains it. It's utterly visible. And folks, yet how often do we miss it? How often do we not even think about it? His power, His creativity, because we're too familiar, because we're too busy, or we just don't slow down enough in wonder and amazement. I would bet for some of you who drive the same way to work every day, if somebody new went with you, they'd point out things and you'd go, I I don't remember seeing that. It's because it's just become so commonplace. Let's not let the majesty of God become commonplace in our lives. Let's have the childlike wonder to look up and gaze, and to look around and gaze at His creation, fellow human beings, and what God has done. Well, then look at verse 2. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. I'm just going to start off right away. This is a hard verse. It's difficult. It's difficult not only for translators, but for interpreters, (laughs) okay? Um, So it's not the clearest. It doesn't actually seem to flow that great with this psalm. But I think the simplest explanation is that what we have here is a picture of God's power and His majesty still at work. That by the the sheer mumbling and, and babbling of nursing infants and toddlers, God is powerful enough to still the enemy and the avenger. That even His majesty, His majesty is shown so great that He doesn't need the, the strong man to still the enemy. He'll use the cries of a baby to do so. It's in weakness, the weakness of humanity, that God establishes the strength uh, and establishes the, the praise of His strength. His delight is not in the strength of the horse or the legs of man, but He takes pleasure in those who fear Him and trust in Him and His steadfast love and power. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 29, we read this, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So you have all the earth proclaiming God in verse 1. But then there's this conflict, this, the, the, the enemies and foes, yet God addresses and stills those enemies and foes with utter weakness of humanity. Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Jesus actually quotes Psalm 8-2. Um, it's probably best if I read the context. This is Matthew 21. It's Palm Sunday, and so I'll start with verse 12. And uh, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So he's, He's cleansed His Father's house. And then verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to Him in the temple, and He healed them. 
But when the chief priest and the scribe saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. So they're crying out. What, what the people, the crowd cried out is Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. The children are crying it out. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. One of the things that happens here is that when Jesus quotes this, he asserts his deity. Because in Psalm 2, the praise is of God, of God the Father. And now he's saying, haven't you heard that the babies will praise God and they're praising Him? He's asserting His deity in this point. But further, what this tells us is that as Jesus is working to bring the new creation to bear, He's healing the blind and the lame. He's fulfilling prophecy in many ways in this. He's setting things right. It should actually elicit praise, but the Pharisees are fighting against it. The Jewish leaders are fighting against, and who praises? the children. And the rebuke of Jesus, one commentator said, brought about the inherent contrast in the original psalm. The children take the name Son of David upon their lips, but the authorities are intransigent and complain. In effect, they are the foes and the avengers of the psalm. But as in the psalms, it is the children who have the truer perception, not the arrogant enemies. See, the children saw the wonder and the majesty of what Jesus was doing in the temple that day, and they rightly responded, not in exact words, but in essence saying, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Folks, this is only the first two verses. Now the text pushes us into looking more into humanity. It does so after looking at God. Obviously, we've talked about that, that we need to have that knowledge of God to have a better knowledge of humanity. And that's the, that's the way things have to be. So let's look at verses 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? This is the pondering response to, to looking up and to seeing the majesty of God. It's human inquisitiveness that comes from recognizing the majesty of the Creator. We see His power and His glory in the heavens as much as we can see of it. And we're stunned in wonder. Consider this. Here's, here's one of the first pictures from the James Webb telescope. Um, it's amazing. I have no idea what it is, um, but I, I stand in wonder at it. And it, it dwarfs what the Hubble telescope can, can take anymore. And the Hubble was amazing. That's one of them. Here's the, the next one. That's some like trenches of Mario, you know, it's, I can't remember what it was called, but it's amazing. It, it looks fake, but it's real. It's amazing. I heard somebody say, and I, I hope this was right, that if, if the Milky Way were the size of North America, our, our solar system would be the size of a coffee cup, and the earth would be the size of a grain of coffee. That's, a, that's unfathomable in so many ways. But, but not just looking up, look under the ocean. Here's one. This is the sea angel. 
that's, un, that's unreal looking to me. It lives in cold waters to depths of 1,600 feet. It looks like something you could just squish like a grape. You know, who sees these? Besides researchers in some deep-sea uh, underwater submarine or, or those who have access to the James Webb telescope, and God. And He delights in them. He delights in a little sea angel or those really ugly things that live on the bottom of the ocean floor that I didn't even want to put a picture up of. But besides God, only mankind has the ability to wonder at all of this. Your dog may look confused, but he's not wondering at the stars. We can look up. We can gaze about at the moon and the stars. We can see pictures like those and all that the Lord has set in place, all that He has purposefully made, not, not something that's randomly appeared by evolution or by chance, but purposefully put there by our God. And this gazing, this pondering, it's, it's not merely something that we get to do, it's something in many ways that we ought to do. It's helpful for us. Psalm 111.12, great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. And that's not just reading Scripture and studying it, but studying His works, His handiwork, studying how a sea angel exists, what they do, studying those spiders that create a little pouch of a circle of air around them, and they live underwater in a pouch of air. It's crazy. I remember John Piper said Ranger Rick was one of his favorite magazines because it would tell him all about how nature worked, and he would just wonder at God. From those things come that key question, right? What is man that you are mindful of him? and the Son of Man that you care for Him. In this massive universe, more than, than we can comprehend, more than we can even fathom, what is man? And the psalmist uses two terms for man here that, that both point to weakness and frailty, to mortality and fragility of mankind. So what is this fragile, weak person that you would care for Him. We are weak and fragile, and yet God, God, this awesome Creator, is mindful. And, and being mindful, it, God directs His, the, the, the love of a Father towards us. He loves us and cherishes us and defends us. He exercises His providence on our behalf. He, he rejoices over us with loud songs of joy. And He cares for us. He remembers us. He pays attention to us. Read Heidelberg Catechism question one. Not a hair from your head can fall without your heavenly Father knowing it. When you attend to someone, you are there. You are, you are noticing every little bit. You're, you're, you're making sure everything works well. He attends to His people. And you see compassion and tenderness in all of this. And this has to, folks, this has to bring about some sort of response in us. 
It should bring about humility, certainly, and gratefulness and wonder that God would choose to make us. And not only choose to make us to enjoy the creation He's given us, but choose to make us to be in relationship with Him, the one who made it all. It should come with it a desire to live for that one, the perfect, caring, holy, compassionate, gracious, and merciful God, the honor that He's given to mankind. It's, it's hard to think about in some ways. It's unfathomable. But there's actually more in this psalm that talks about the honor that's been given to us. In the, in the next verses, He tells us four things that are true of mankind. Look at verse 5. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Now, before we dive into this section, I want to read the account of creation in Genesis. Just Genesis 1, uh, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It was the sixth day and God saw it and it was very good. God created mankind. He blessed them. He blessed us and gave us great responsibility. So then we see in verse, uh, Psalm 8, We see in verse 5 that first of the four things. He made man a little lower than the heavenly beings. Now, some of you may have a translation that says a little lower than God, or you have a footnote, as in the ESV, that's got a little one or two or whatever next to it, and it says, or God. That's because the word is Elohim. It is the word that's typically translated God in Hebrew. And Um, So it it can mean God, it can mean that generic heavenly beings. The point is that we have this elevated state of creation. We are made just a little lower than God or just a little lower than the heavenly beings. We were created with amazing dignity and honor. Humans are most certainly not God. We will not become gods. But we are closer to God than anything else in all of creation. We are the only ones created in His image. Well, then comes the second statement. We are crowned with glory and honor. Crowned with glory and honor. I believe that the key aspect this speaks to is that we, what, what we have has been given to us. Okay, the glory and honor of man is not inherent to mankind or original to us. It's derivative from God. It's been given to us. It's been set on us as a crown. There's royal language to this. But we are royal because of God, because of what God has bestowed upon us. It doesn't take away from the glory and honor, but we realize that it's reflective. It can still be amazing, but it's reflective. I mean, think about when the full moon is out. 
and how bright it is in the evening. The moon is not producing any light of its own. It is merely reflective, the light of the sun. We reflect the glory and honor of our Creator. Then third, mankind has been given dominion. This is a pivotal function of mankind. Under the divine king, we are to serve as benevolent rulers over creation. We're to care and to keep. Genesis 2.15, that was the charge he gave to them, to care and to keep the garden, to care uh, and, and uphold the garden. And that should influence how we care for the world, how we care for ourselves, and how we care for others. And then fourthly, all things are put under the feet of man. I want to highlight in that, that, that line that you have put all things. We see the word all in verses 6 and 7, but we also see all in verses 1 and 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And one commentator insightfully said this. He said, the allness, that's, I love how people make up, so I'm not the only person who makes up words. So, the allness of God's majesty is given by God to humanity. The repetition of all in verses 6 and 7 affects how we hear the refrain when it occurs in verse 9. Verse 9 is an exact verbal repetition of verse 1, but the, the sense now is different precisely because the psalmist has told us that the majesty of God in all the earth includes the glory and dominion of humanity. The identity of God and the identity of humanity are inseparable. So we see it at the beginning in verse 1. Oh Lord, our Lord we just look at His creation and, and all that He's done, but as we read and we read it at the end, we go, part of that creation is us. It's the glory and dominion that He's given to mankind. Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. We have to take seriously the role humanity has been given in creation. We have a massive responsibility. We're the representatives of God, a God-given responsibility to, to exercise dominion in that way that reflects God's glory and honor. But the one thing this psalm doesn't talk about is that we failed. Psalms 3 through 7, all about lament and pain. This psalm, there's no mention of our failure. This is pre-fall. We failed. And what that points us to do is to look more deeply at this text and to, to let Scripture interpret Scripture and see where the New Testament deals with this text, because it sees here not just a reference to man, but to the divine human, to the God-man, to Jesus Christ. You see, Psalm 8 sets forth the proper role of mankind in creation, but what it tells us is that there's, there's great hope. There's great hope in the psalm of what we are to be, but when we know of our failure and we know that it hasn't been fulfilled, we have to go, where is our hope? And our hope is in Jesus. So Psalm 8 is actually considered, it's one of the, the psalms in, in, of the 150 that's considered to be directly messianic. 
okay? I believe they're all messianic. All, all of Scripture points to Christ, but um, some people will say it's a big M as opposed to a little M. Like, it's very directly, it's quoted, it's, it's referenced in that way. It does it very directly. There's, there's much even that speaks indirectly. Obviously, it's Creator. John 1 references and speaks of Christ as the Creator. His name being majestic and superior, we just studied Philippians, Philippians 2, 9, and 10, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue proclaim on heaven and earth. So we know of that, that majesty. We've already looked at how Jesus used Psalm 8 in Matthew 21, but then there's Hebrews. And I don't have time to go through Hebrews in depth, but I just want to give you a taste of this. Hebrews 2 quotes um, Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, and I'll, I'll read the context here. So Hebrews 2, starting in verse 5, at least a bit of the context. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, this somewhere is Psalm 8, what is man that you were mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So, the author of Hebrews is referencing this to Jesus and Jesus' work in the incarnation. It's attributed to him that he was made for a time in the incarnation a little lower than the angels. He was crowned with glory and honor. And further, we see the author of Hebrews telling us how he was crowned with glory and honor. Verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. One thing this tells us, and I don't have time to get into it, is that we too will suffer in that same way to move to glory and honor further. Christ, his, the, the cross, uh, there's a great song that I used to listen to that, that has the line that the cross was the place of his coronation speech. So he was crowned with glory and honor at the cross. And in the resurrection declared to be the Son of God in power. One of my old professors wrote this. He said, the purposes of God for human beings in this world are fulfilled in Christ. We find our true humanity and identity in Him. Jesus has come to restore through His suffering and death God's original purpose for us that was marred by sin. Through Jesus, we are restored to our kingly role of dominion over creation. It's through Jesus that things will be set right. It's through Him that we are restored and ultimately our role, that kingly role, will be restored fully in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus truly puts everything under His feet, including death. And this is actually even referenced in 1 Corinthians 15, 27 that talks about putting all things under His feet. And that last enemy to be defeated is death. Folks, Jesus is our hope in all of life. And because we do suffer, yes, the Psalms around us speaks to suffering. This one doesn't, but we know a life of suffering and pain. We're restored in Christ. We're restored in the true Son of Man. God is mindful of, and that was mindful of His people, and that He sent Him to die and to live for us.
so that we would know true life, that we would know restoration and beauty, that He would save us from our sins and set things right. Psalm 8 is more than just wonder at God's creation. It is that, that, that prompts us into this. But as we dig deeper, we see that it actually speaks of the restoration to what He's called us to. The restoration as that role of a, of a, of a king of creation, a king within creation. It's, it's a witness to the glory and grace of God. It's a picture of what we are to be and of how we are to live in relation of God, to God. Our lives are to be lived in the context of that relationship to the majestic Lord, living for His glory, reflecting His glory as we live. It's, it's a wonder at Jesus as we see all that Jesus has done as He set everything right, and He will set everything right. We cry out together, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your work in our lives, Your love and Your care for us. Lord, we ask that You would sustain us, that You would help us understand what You have called us to, what You are restoring us to in Christ. Lord, may we wonder at your beauty and your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.